After months of bizarre behavior and refusing to help police locate her two missing children, Lori Vallow had finally been extradited from her hiding place in sunny Hawaii to snowy Idaho to face the law. My Mystery and Murder analysis by Dr. Phil Team was boots on the ground for her monumental court hearing and what they witnessed shocked them. On this final episode, we'll talk about where the case stands now and if there is any hope of finding Tylee and JJ alive. There's also even more to uncover when it comes to Lori's now-deceased brother Alex. As it turns out, his shooting of her estranged husband might just be the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his crimes. All of this and more is coming up next on A Mother's Secret, The Lori Vallow Story, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I am Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. The Idaho courtroom was packed with media. It was an absolute frenzy. Sheriffs had to stand guard at the doors to keep the curious crowd at bay. The media is usually competitive. Everyone wants to be the one breaking the story, but now they all bonded together due to the gravity of the situation. These children were still missing, and that wasn't lost on anyone sitting in that courtroom. Now, When we had recently seen Lori in photos or on camera avoiding reporters' questions, we had seen an attractive woman, well-dressed and certainly made up. When she entered the courtroom on March 6th, we saw a woman who no longer looked like someone fresh off the heels of a tropical vacation. She still sported makeup and curled hair, but otherwise... She looked every inch the prisoner. She was clad in an orange-striped prison suit and orange prison sandals. Everyone's eyeballs bore into the woman who seemed to not have an ounce of concern for her missing children. What would she possibly say? Meanwhile, of all people, Chad Daybell entered the courtroom through a side door. There was immediate staring and whispering. Many were surprised he had the audacity to show up. He had a poker face on and did not speak to a soul. He was seated right up front. Lori's family was there, including her son Colby and JJ's grandparents, both of whom I have interviewed at length. When both Lori and Chad entered the room, you could feel a shift in their energy. There's probably nothing more frustrating than feeling like someone has the answers and just won't give them to you. 
The judge, knowing full well how much of a media firestorm this case had turned into, instructed the family and the public that any outburst would result in their removal. When it was time for Lori to address the judge, she spoke barely above a whisper, and her voice sounded very childlike. She made a point to ask the judge to, quote, call her Mrs. Daybell. For the most part, she appeared expressionless, staring blankly ahead and fidgeting. At no time did she cry or show any signs that might indicate emotion, remorse, concern, nothing. Of course, her attorney did most of the talking. She argued that Lori wasn't fleeing to Hawaii one day after police questioned her about her missing children. According to the lawyer, this was merely a planned move. After all, Lori had already lived on that island. Yeah, a likely story. It's just a coincidence that your move coincides with being confronted by investigators. They're there one afternoon, They come back the next morning, and you are gone. Certainly sounds like going on the lamb to me, but then that's just my opinion. Her attorney tried even more tactics in order to convince the judge to lower Lori's bond. Lori didn't have a history of crime, she argued. Her attorney also made it a point to say that Lori maintained her innocence when it came to Tylee and JJ's whereabouts. Prosecutor Rob Wood wasn't having any of it. He wasted no time ripping in to Lori. He wanted to compromise her and rip her credibility to shreds. He was adamant that her bail of $5 million not be reduced. To support this, Wood reminded the judge that Lori not only had a history of refusing to cooperate with police, but also of defying court orders. Remember, She had been given five days to produce Tylee and J.J. and failed to do so. Therefore, it was plausible that she would betray the system again. Not only that, but another disturbing detail came to light. She had continued to collect Social Security checks for both children, even after leaving Idaho for Hawaii without them. So she's actually making money off of them even while they're missing, or God forbid, worse. She's making sure she's still collecting that money. She is apparently not seeing them. She is unwilling to let anyone check on them. But she's sure getting that money in her hands. The judge reprimanded Lori for her lack of cooperation in the case. At this point, this woman is proving that by not saying where her children are or how they are, she clearly has something to hide. So while this is coming to light during the hearing, Lori's defense shockingly had the bravado to complain about Lori being hounded by reporters saying she cannot go anywhere without cameras and people scrutinizing her every single move. 
you know, when you boil it down and take all of my forensic training aside, all of my psychological training aside, I lean real heavy on common sense. Does this woman really not understand why people are focused on her? I mean, seriously, Lori Vallow, you're not that interesting. You're being hounded. You're the center of attention because people are concerned for your children, not because you're some Farrah Fawcett lookalike. It's because it's unfathomable to think of a mother who wouldn't want her children found. What mother on planet Earth would not want to do as much as possible so that the world would know where these children are, where to look for these children? That's why I had Larry and Kay and Lori's son, Colby, talk to me earlier. They were more than happy to do it. Why? Because they're innocent. Why? Because they want to find Tylee and JJ. Why? Because they're putting the children's interest ahead of their own. Why? Because they have nothing to hide. Why? Because they want to put a giant spotlight on over this case so nobody forgets it. But their own mother is sitting there in that courtroom like Butterwood melt in her mouth, having her lawyer say she's been put upon by aggressive reporters. Really? Really? Of course, the reason that neither Chad nor Lori have been charged with murder is because there haven't been any bodies found yet. And trust me, prosecutors want to get it right. A murder case without a body is harder to prove. That means prosecution now has to use other evidence that is circumstantial, and they only get one bite at the apple. If they jump too soon, if they fail their burden, which is a very high burden, this woman could walk away. The defense will most likely have opportunities to poke holes in the prosecution's case based on reasonable doubt. There used to be this rule of, quote, no body, no murder, which began in the 1600s and continued into the 20th century. If you recall the case of Lacey Peterson, who went missing on Christmas Eve in 2002, it was the day they found her body and the body of her unborn son, Connor, that her husband, Scott Peterson, was arrested. They waited until they had a body. It is a slippery slope until you do. Back to this case. The judge had heard enough from both sides. He did agree to lower the bail, but still set it at an incredibly high number, $1 million. The judge instructed that if Lori was released, she would have to wear an ankle bracelet. So even if she makes bail, even if she comes up with the million-dollar bond, 
she's going to have to wear a GPS device around her ankle. She appeared to have no reaction to this. She didn't smile. She didn't cry. Now, I mentioned that she was doing a lot of fidgeting, tapping her feet, dangling her sandal from her foot. Of course, fidgeting can be a physical manifestation of anxiety, but it can also be a sign that someone is being deceptive. For so many months, she was able to sidestep confrontation, and now she is having to face it dead on. JJ's grandparents, Kay and Larry, look relieved as a judgment for a million-dollar bail was handed down. The one thing they want is to know where their grandchildren are, not to be part of this ongoing circus of Lori and whatever it is that she believes. Understand, with a million-dollar bail, ordinarily, you can put up 10% of that amount in cash or property and be granted bail. However, you have to find a bondsman that's willing to do that. Grandparents Kay and Larry wore Hawaiian lays gifted to them that represented their support from Hawaii during this nightmare. Outside the courtroom, Larry made this statement to the bank of reporters waiting outside. Right now, I only have one question. Where are the kids? Where are the kids? Where are the kids? Bring them home. Once again, it's the family and these grandparents making an impassioned plea for their safe return. Not Lori. Once the hearing was over, Chad quickly exited the courthouse through a back door and refused to speak to any of the reporters desperate to hear a word from him. So at this point, Lori's been brought back to Rexburg, Idaho, where she's behind bars, but she's still not leading anyone to J.J. or Tylee. But that doesn't mean all is quiet on the Western Front. Remember that brother of Lori's, Alex? The man with a long rap sheet and a list of run-ins with the law might have passed away, but there was still more troubling information about him that was about to surface. Indeed, it seemed like where Alex went, trouble followed. Serious trouble. Even death. But before police had a chance to press him further, Alex passed away. Only one day after Chad's deceased wife, Tammy's body was exhumed. Was this a coincidence? Tammy was interred under a large picturesque tree in Evergreen Cemetery in East Idaho. Of course, none of Tammy's loved ones wanted her to be exhumed. But investigators knew this might be the only way to crack open a suspicious case. For Chad's wife and Lori's husband to both die so unexpectedly and within a couple of months of each other, well, it certainly raised a red flag to investigators. Those who were close to the Daybell family have begun to speak out, sharing things about Chad's recent behavior that they found unsettling. For example, some longtime friends of the family found it bizarre how rushed Tammy's funeral seemed. She died on a Saturday, and four days later she was buried, and there was a memorial service. According to this source, there wasn't even a casket present, 
and there weren't that many people present because it had been so hastily planned. A hasty funeral, a husband who doesn't want an autopsy. Is this that unusual? Maybe not if there wasn't the background that we have in this situation. But given the history, given the mysterious deaths, it just seems to raise suspicion. A former friend of Chad's came forward saying that he had said that he no longer wanted to be with Tammy. Three weeks before Tammy dies, he said to me, and he was kind of in this frustrated voice, my plan can't move forward until Tammy's dead. My plan can't move forward until Tammy's dead? Now, clearly, this is hearsay. But if he said that, that's a pretty chilling statement. This former friend was a writer who had worked with Chad closely. She had no reason to make this up. Then, only nine days after her death, Chad wrote something interesting in a local doomsday newsletter. It was an essay, and it was titled, Moving Into the Second Half of My Life. Well, his recovery from his wife and the mother of his children seemed to be moving along at a pretty swift pace. This is what he had to say. My dear wife, Tammy, passed away in her sleep early Saturday, October 19th. When I awoke around 6 a.m., it was clear she had been gone for several hours. It came as a shock. I couldn't believe I hadn't been awakened somehow, but all indications are that her spirit simply slipped away during the night. Her face looked serene, with her eyes closed and a slight smile. It was devastating to discover her that way, but I'm so grateful that her death was peaceful. As I like to say to my staff when we're talking about an unsolved case, when we're trying to look at things from all sides, I say, let's love every idea for five minutes. That way we keep an open mind and consider all possibilities. On the one hand, you could say this is the writing of a grieving man who is putting a brave face on while he copes with the death of his wife and childhood sweetheart. Or it could be interpreted another way. If he allegedly had something to do with his wife's death, it was a good way of proclaiming his innocence to everyone who read his newsletter. Think about it. He's once again reciting a version of what he most likely said to first responders. I woke up and my wife was gone, just like that. Also, while people certainly grieve in all kinds of ways, to pen an essay about how you're moving full steam ahead with the second phase of your life when your wife has just been buried. If you're in a leadership position, if you're really trying to set an example for people, do you want to have even the appearance of impropriety, the appearance of insensitivity. Do you want to model that life, partners, 
loved ones are disposable as a commodity? Then, keep in mind that a mere five days after he wrote this essay, Chad married Lori in Hawaii. Oh yes, he had certainly moved on. The dirt on this poor woman's grave was still settling while he was already tying the knot to another woman. Had he been more prepared for Tammy's passing than he was letting on? He also made the point in this article to note this sense of, quote, at peace when he woke up next to her dead body. Was this a way for him to assuage his guilt? And there were other factors that made her death seem suspicious as well. Right after Tammy's passing, court documents show that Chad received $430,000 in life insurance money. And multiple sources say that Chad made significant increases to at least one policy before Tammy passed away. When police connect all of these yarns of thread, they all connect to Chad and his new blushing bride, Lori. It would be bad enough for this to be solely a case of missing children. Throw in a couple of spousal deaths and doomsday believers and you've got yourself a pair of highly suspicious newlyweds. Tammy's body was exhumed on December 11th, only a couple of months after her burial. Investigators believe there may be a link between Chad and the new Mrs. Daybell to Tammy's death. Tammy and Chad were high school sweethearts who had met and fallen in love in Utah. In Utah, state laws are different. Because she died in Idaho, it's at the family's discretion whether or not to request an autopsy, and her family, led by Chad, had declined. The only reason Tammy had moved with Chad to Idaho was because he had been called, quote, by the Spirit to do so. Convenient that now he's in a state where this type of law exists. Is that the reason he moved there? I certainly can't say that, but it certainly worked out well for him. We've talked about the importance of performing an autopsy, but getting results from an exhumed body can be a horse of a different color, depending on a variety of factors. Now, one of the main questions when it comes to exhuming a body is obviously how long has the person been buried? In this case, about two months. And a lot can happen in that time in terms of evidence. Some of the key issues that a coroner has to grapple with is were they buried in a sealed or unsealed casket? Did water get into the casket, which causes advanced decompensation and degradation of the body? The fact that there's no longer blood for a toxology report can sometimes be a significant issue, even though there are other organs and tissues present to be looked at. So at this point, Tammy's autopsy was a few months ago, and there are still not concrete answers, at least none that have been released to the public. Her cause of death, her manner of death, have still not been released. Now, this could be for a variety of reasons. 
for these types of investigations, there can be testing, follow-up testing, ruling certain things out. This is where the coroner plays detective and tries to get answers from the dead. However, sources now say that there is digital evidence linking Alex Cox to Tammy's death. Could it really be that Chad, Lori, and Alex were allegedly in cahoots to kill this poor woman, this mother of five children? And if so, how involved was Chad? Is he the mastermind giving assignments to Lori and Alex? He certainly seems to be the ringleader of the Doomsday Group. In fact, Chad is the one who has this claim of being able to be in this world and the next. That he exists in the here and now as well as in the afterlife. In fact, his fascination with death goes way back. Back when Chad was in college, he worked at a cemetery digging graves and doing maintenance work. A gloomy job, but Chad seemed to relish it. He claims he encountered ghosts during his time there. This was when he honed his skills in speaking to the dead. He also claimed to have dug up buried bodies. In one instance, he dug up a grave so a mortician could retrieve a wedding ring. His books show his preoccupation with death as well. One is particularly chilling called One Foot from the Grave, Secrets of a cemetery sexton. In the book, he writes about a lock-picking ghost, a coffin-chasing cow, and other meddling spirits. The novel is described as being tongue-in-cheek. He's acting like he worked at Disney's haunted mansion, not a burial ground. So, what does this say about Chad? it all seems to lead back to his belief that the rapture is approaching and how he's always been drawn to the macabre and morose in life. Then you have evidence of him peddling this narrative that he was this powerful man who had these unique powers. It could very well have been that sense of authority he presented that drew Lori in. It's no question that this doomsday group drew Lori and Chad together. The question I have is, does he really believe all of this? Has he diluted himself into believing he has these powers that he lives in two worlds, or is this just part of a con? Is this just a way to con people out of their money, con people out of their admiration, con people out of their support and belief? Is this an ego trip, a money train? Or is he really this delusional? And whichever it may be, is Lori sucked in by it? Or is she part of it? If this is a con, if he's just doing all of this to run a scam on people, is she in on the scam? Or is she being suckered by him? It certainly seems like Chad and Lori are on 
a different wavelength from most people when it came to their philosophies about death. Is this why they were allegedly involved with these deaths and disappearances? And I say allegedly because neither of them have been charged in the deaths, although Lori is now facing charges concerning the disappearance of the children. But let's listen to what Lori's son, Colby, who certainly knows her better than any of us, had to say when I talked to him about growing up with someone who believed this kind of thing. Basically growing up, it was about that things didn't matter as much because we could die tomorrow or that it was coming and it's not worth building yourself up, you know, like maybe going to college, like certain things just don't matter because it's not going to matter in the end when, it, when the world ends, it's not going to matter. Well, that's a pretty bizarre and disheartening message to want to pass on to your children. That doesn't really inspire them to strive to achieve in this world. It's kind of like, you know, what difference does it make? There are emails between Chad and Lori from back before they were officially together that stand out to authorities. In one of these emails, Chad spoke of seven missions to accomplish together, including setting up white camps in Arizona and figuring out food distributions and supplies for righteous members of families. Was this the plan Chad allegedly told a friend he couldn't carry out until Tammy was dead? And what exactly did all of these terms mean? And if they were to go into effect, what did this actually mean for Tylee and JJ? Chad's religious sect had been front and center during this case, and while we've gleaned so much from this case, there is still so much about this group that seems to remain shrouded in mystery. And of course, mystery is power. One woman from his group who came forward spoke to reporters only under the condition of anonymity. This woman claimed that both her and Chad had the ability to communicate with spirits and that they stockpile food and supplies because the world will come to an end. Again, this is a fringe group. These are not beliefs consistent with the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints. However, many, like it seems Lori was, are drawn in through their involvement with the LDS Church. It starts at one level, and then they get pulled in to this subset, this splinter group. So as of right now, Lori's life may be on hold behind bars, but a lot is going on behind the scenes with her defense team. As of March 15th, two of Lori's lawyers quit. She now has just one lawyer, Mark Means, to represent her. You have to wonder why this is. Is Lori being difficult? Maybe making what they deem to be outrageous claims as a client? Or do they think they can't defend her because of something they know that we don't? Now, I've spent a lot of time in the litigation arena. I've worked with a lot of lawyers and a lot of clients, and I've seen clients and lawyers part ways for a lot of reasons. 
The most typical among those reasons are incompatibility. The lawyer and the client just simply can't agree on a strategy for the case. They just can't agree on what is the best route to take in trying the case, in defending the case, in prosecuting the case, whichever side it may be on. And it's very difficult for a lawyer to advocate for something they just don't believe. They can't get their head around something. And if the client won't take their advice, then they shouldn't be involved. It's kind of like, look, I'm your lawyer. If you're not going to listen to me, you need to get a lawyer you will listen to because I can't be effective for you and you're not going to be happy with the result. It doesn't necessarily mean they found out that she's guilty and so they don't feel good about going forward. It can just mean they have a different attitude about how best to defend her innocence. You just don't know. Interestingly, the judge has also stepped down after her legal team requested he remove himself from the case. Now, according to Idaho law, a reason does not need to be given, and the judge approved the motion and removed himself from presiding over the case. It hasn't been stated, but this could be because the judge made note of how defiant Lori was when it came to cooperating with police. He didn't hold back with letting her know that he believed she was being deliberately misleading. So in the defense side's opinion, it seemed that he was prejudiced, that he had already made up his mind that she was hiding something. And given his position, they asked that he recuse himself, which they have the right to do. In addition, while he did reduce her bail, he still put it at $1 million. That says something about how he perceives her, and taken with his comments, it just doesn't seem like he's the best person for the defense. As of now, a two-day preliminary hearing has been postponed to May 7th and 8th, and a new judge has not yet been assigned. I have to tell you, I have a serious problem with that. This has been put off till May 7th and 8th. Every day that goes by, those children are missing. Every day that goes by, when there is not a hearing, when there is not an opportunity for this woman to be questioned under oath, those children are no closer to being found. Now, with her being charged, she does not have to testify. She can stand mute and not speak. But at least the case can be adjudicated, it can be processed, and to do nothing, to issue a standstill order and not expedite this, given the fact that these children could be in harm's way, does not seem to be the best use of our tax dollars. So what now? As Lori awaits trial, Tylee's aunt, Annie, who I have also sat down and spoken with, has been doing her best to keep the story of these children alive and use social media to gather more clues. 
The last time Tylee was actually seen was September 8th in Yellowstone National Park. So Tylee's aunt worked with a developer to pull social media data from Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in hopes that someone, someone, caught a glimpse of Tylee. Not only have investigators determined the last time they were seen, they also know that the last person they were with was their Uncle Alex. It sends a chill down my spine to say that, and it probably sends a chill down your spine to hear it. It's a case that continues to build and come together, yet there are still so many questions. Time will tell what happens to Lori. Meanwhile, Chad has yet to be charged with any crimes. Is there a chance his lucky streak will run out or he will waltz off into the apocalyptic sunset while Lori remains behind bars? Well, evidence against him seems to be mounting. Remember that storage unit, the one Lori rented out to pull all her children's belongings together and store them? Well, at first, investigators thought that Lori was captured on camera with her brother Alex moving in all these items. But as it turns out, Chad knew about this storage unit as well, and he had been there too. In the video footage of October 1st, it first appeared that the man accompanying Lori Vallow was her brother Alex, but now... According to East Idaho News, enhanced video footage suggests that the man with Lori at the storage unit was none other than Chad Daybell. It now looks like it's Chad moving a tire from the back seat of Lori's car and putting it into storage. Why does this matter? Well, this storage trip occurred only one day before Brandon, the husband of Lori's niece, Melanie, was shot at. Charles Vallow drove a Jeep before his death. When Brandon was shot at the next day, he says it was Charles' Jeep and that Alex was the driver. It's possible that Chad, Lori, and Alex conspired and removed the tire so that if need be, the rear window could be opened. It's chilling to think about that, but at this point, what exactly are these three capable of? Could it be that tire was removed so one could shoot from the back window? It's also interesting to note that like Chad, Melanie had something to gain by her husband possibly dying. Brandon had a life insurance policy and assets of more than $1 million. Safe to say, Melanie and Brandon's marriage has officially soured, especially if she was somehow involved in the hit that he believes was put out on him. Brandon has struck back against his former wife and extended family. Not only does he allege they are part of a cult, but that his estranged wife, Melanie, knows the whereabouts of Tylee and J.J., His allegation came up in court documents relating to his own custody battle with Melanie. In these documents, his lawyer stated that Brandon has serious concerns for his children's safety, 
if they were placed in the care of the mother. He went on to say that his wife is a member of a doomsday cult with radical beliefs and that numerous members, adults and children alike, have been killed off like flies. But his most damning allegation referred to Tylee and J.J. Brandon claimed he was concerned because Melanie's, quote, knowledge of the whereabouts of her aunt's two missing children and her unwillingness to cooperate with law enforcement in finding those children is daunting to father. Close quote. Can you imagine? One day you're married, and the next day you're worried that your wife wants you dead and is involved with a cult and missing children. Meanwhile, when Melanie appeared in custody court, already with a new husband in tow, her lawyer vehemently denied that she had any knowledge of Tylee and JJ's whereabouts and said that she is not involved in any cult but merely very fond of Aunt Lori. The bottom line is, someone, somebody knows something about where Tylee and J.J. are. It is highly unlikely that these two disappeared themselves. It is very hard for children to disappear from the face of the earth on their own. As of this time, if Lori knows, she's still not saying where these children are. In light of coronavirus, her trial as of now is being pushed back to May. Of course, this pandemic has affected all of our lives. In this case, it's prolonging the time these children are missing. It's prolonging the process of bringing Lori to justice. Her remaining lawyer, Mark Means, had this to say. As with any citizen of our country, Ms. Daybell is entitled to all the privileges and rights that accompany our cornerstone belief of innocence until proven beyond a reasonable doubt otherwise. It is this innocence that Mrs. Daybell assertively maintains regarding all charges. Beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a steep hill to climb but it is a hill that can be climbed nonetheless. I personally believe that if Mrs. Daybell, the former Mrs. Lori Vallow, doesn't answer some questions, the jury is very likely to make inferences to her detriment and perhaps rightly so. We shall see. I certainly hope it is not too late when she does. This is the final installment of A Mother's Secret, the Lori Vallow story. But for the first time, I'm going to tell you that I consider this to be an open case and an open broadcast. And when you look back over the course, the timeline, and the interrelations of this case, and I say you need to look at clusters, we have nine people involved in this that are all either suspected 
perpetrators or clearly victims. That is a cluster. Now, we have Lori, who was married to Joe, who had his life threatened by her brother Alex. She's then married to Charles, who is killed by Alex. She then meets Chad, who's married to Tammy, who unexpectedly, supposedly dies in her sleep, but there is suspicion that Alex may have been involved, and he dies the day after her body is exhumed, but not before he's seen driving Charles' Jeep on the day Brandon reports that someone takes a shot at him and shoots a bullet hole through his windshield. All of this is the backdrop to Tylee and JJ going missing. So Lori and Chad are both married to spouses that wind up dead. Lori's brother is suspected of being involved in both spouses' death. And her niece's husband's attempted shooting before Alex winds up dead himself. And we still have no idea where Tylee and JJ are. All we know is that they were reportedly last seen with Alex, who may have taken their fate to his grave. Folks, you just can't make this stuff up. We are continuing to work on this case. I continue to have investigators involved and on the ground in Idaho. And as I learn more, I'm going to advise you of what I find out. So when I know, you will know. Until then, know that I will continue to keep an eye on this case as it unfolds. JJ's grandparents, Kay and Larry, know that I am here for them as the search continues, as does Colby, Lori's son, and Aunt Annie. All anyone wants is for these children to be returned home safely. As each day goes by, everyone fears the worst. I will keep you posted. When I know, you will know. You've been listening to A Mother's Secret, The Lori Vallow Story. Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil.